Welcome to this bonus episode of The Curious Farmer. This is a repeat of the first episode, The Humble Onion, when I spoke with Mike and Lauren Layfield of Feld's Farm. I've tried to clean up the audio quality for you, but unfortunately you just can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. I've recast this episode so that you can refresh your memory, if you'd like, before listening to this week's episode with Lauren, where I catch up on their progress over the last 18 months. Welcome to the Curious Farmer podcast. My name's Kate and I'm a curious farmer. In 2012, my husband and I started Leap Farm. We apply ecological principles to try and benefit the environment while producing great tasting food. Our endeavour has led to more questions. So join me as I get all the dirt straight from the farmers, chefs, scientists and people who love to eat good food about how we can make informed decisions about the best ways to grow, shop and eat food with our health and the health of our planet in mind. It's incredibly hard for young first-generation farmers to enter the agricultural industry. In this episode, I talk to 20-somethings Mike and Lauren Layfield, whose story about entering farming will inspire you and provide you with some tips and tricks for growing your own food at home. It also gives you an idea of options for young people who do want to be the future of farming. This interview was recorded in early spring 2019. Just as the temperatures were warming up and the busy season was upon us, Mike and Lauren have had a fantastic season despite the wind and cool temperatures and are now regular stallholders at Launceston Saturday Morning Farmers Market. I'm speaking to Lauren and Mike Layfield from Feld's Farm who are situated in Lilydale in the northeast of Tasmania. Lauren and Mike started off their careers independently as chefs and have since moved into market gardening. Lauren grew up in inner city Melbourne before she moved over to the UK for some work experience where she met Mike. Mike also grew up in a suburban environment and became a chef. And I'm interested in talking to these guys about how they've moved from being chefs to being farmers and some of the lessons that they've learnt along the way. Welcome, Lauren and Mike. Thank you very much. A very beautiful spring morning here. The sun is shining. It's very still. Yeah. No wind, which is lovely. So if the sun is shining, that means the plants are growing? Yep. Yep, definitely. And And how are the weeds? And the the weeds are growing as well. (laughs) So... Lauren and Mike, what prompted you guys to move from successful careers as chefs in London to becoming market gardeners in Tasmania? Well, Lauren's visa ran out in the UK and, <laughs> and I didn't want to I didn't want to lose her, so I thought I'd better follow her to Australia. So you followed her to um, Australia? I think the um a big moment for me was working in London doing crazy 100-hour weeks over Christmas at an events company where we served thousands of people every day. And just watching and processing the sheer volume of food we as humans produce and consume is quite mm. eye-opening. You know, we were in one city, in one part of the world, in one building, feeding so many people mm. and scale of food just for that little place on the grand scheme of it all is insane. It was quite sobering, I take it. Mm, yep. Yeah, 
I remember there was one Christmas we had to prep and and serve like thirty thousand chicken breasts and two tons of ox cheek and stuff like that. Thirteen hundred quail. Yeah, it's just really mind boggling, you know. And as Lauren said, that's just one little place. Yeah, it really sort of made us think about where our food comes from and also the waste streams that happen when we consume Mm -hmm. food that is largely imported and given to us because we demand it, not because it's seasonal, not because it's Mm. what's available. So the waste really scared me. I mean, as chefs, we're obviously always striving to get the best quality produce and as time went on, we realised that more often not the best, well, in fact, all the time, the best produce comes from small producers who are farming regeneratively, sustainably, whatever you want to call it, but more so just small farms that are actually focusing on quality of their soil, their animal welfare, ultimately leads to a, a far superior product. And so first and foremost, as chefs, we were just looking for quality, and that's what drove us to speaking to these smaller producers and actually finding out where our produce came from. And then when we moved to Australia, that carried over and, you know, we would go and visit the farms that were supplying our restaurant and that was really a massive inspiration for us to kind of get out of the city and actually have a crack at We just wanted to grow our own food. That's what our plan was and it just sort of fell into place that we ended up had an opportunity to move from Melbourne to Tasmania to look after one of Lauren's family members' farm, and so we kind of had the opportunity to to just live live on the land there. And you know, we were working in Hobart and just trying to start our own little food garden. And you know, we got chooks and and ducks. And I remember. <laughs> I remember the first time we hatched ducklings, we had we didn't have a suitable space for them outside, and so they lived in our bathtub for a few days um, while we, like, we sort of rustled together a little predator-proof shelter for them. And yeah, so that was that was almost three years ago that we moved to Tassie, mm-hmm. and yeah, started this little journey that's now snowboarded and become our, our life, really. And, mm-hmm. The intent was never really to start farming as such. It's more that you fell into it, that opportunities arose and you took them. Yeah. When I tell my or our story, I very strongly say this was not an intentional leap of faith or decision-based thing. You know, we didn't go into this going we want to grow food on on some sort of scale. We just sort of wanted to see what it was like Mm. to get back to where it all starts. Yeah, we want because we are passionate about food. We are passionate about you know the environment and animals and we wanted to open our own restaurant and have a small garden and supply the restaurant with some of the produce. And I'm so glad we changed our mind (laughs) because that that would have been a whole different kettle of fish. Mm -hmm. Our original market garden was in Baghdad, which is in the southern midlands of Tasmania. And as I said, Lauren's family had a farm there. We had a about a 500 square meter area that we we turned over into beds, and you know we we'd already met a lot of the growers that supplied restaurants in Hobart, and so we were because we were working. Yeah, we were mm-hmm. working as chefs. And in fact, that's really how we started growing for restaurants. 
was purely because we were working there and they were telling us constantly how hard it is to find people who grow good plants. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's some fantastic growers in Tasmania, but the chefs were always saying, oh, if we could just get a little bit more and just have a bit more of this. And so that's what kind of spurred us into going from just having a home garden to a little 500-square-metre plot and, yeah, just kind of escalated from there. This is our third season, but I would really call it our second season because our first year was super late with learning the ropes, really, and, and just sort of harvesting what we could, what actually worked. So now we are how big? We're just under an acre. Our bed systems is based off the, the perma beds that most market gardeners seem to use. They're 75-centimetre beds, raised beds. When I say raised, they're, they're still on the soil at ground level, but they're just slightly raised from the pathway. Most people tend to make them by shoveling dirt from what will be the pathways onto where the beds will be, and it slightly raises them. So at the moment we have five blocks, and so each block is 12 beds, and they're 20 metres long. So that's quite a significant increase in size then from your original 500 square metre plot. Why Mm. have you grown? There was a demand for the product. Our first sort of practice season was 500 square metres and then we went into our second season and we, we tripled that and it's still heaps of room for more produce to be grown and and that's just supplying restaurants. Yeah, we didn't do any. We only did the Bream Creek Farmers Market once a month and we predominantly sold bread because Michael is also a sourdough baker. I wouldn't say that we just continue to grow. I'd actually like to get to a point where we're comfortable and then become no growth. Mm. Oh, Wedgetail Eagles, that is massive. Sorry, Kate. <laughs> Uh, you've got to love the diversity of the wildlife. Oh, it's fantastic. There's two, wedges, there's two wedges that nest near our house. Oh, fantastic. There's wedges yeah. that nest near our place as well. And I always yeah. think how annoying it is to have wedges when they're taking our baby goats, but how wonderful it yeah. is to have these critically endangered birds yeah. producing offspring with a mm. steady food supply nearby. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so as Lauren was saying, going into this season, and, and so we've just moved as well. We moved from Baghdad up to uh, Lilydale in the northeast, and that move sort of happened over winter. And so we were able to go between two farms and, you know, tend the crops in one place and then start building new a new market garden, essentially. Um, so why did you move, Mike? We just got offered a really awesome opportunity. Some friends of ours who are also farmers, they're called Summerly Farm, they, they run beef cattle. They have a separate little block with a with a little house on it. They said, do you want to come and live in the cottage? And yeah, it just went from there. We came up and had a chat with them and, and the land and the soil is awesome. And the rainfall and yeah, in the area is pretty good as well, I understand. Yeah, yeah, the rainfall is, is much higher than what we were getting in Baghdad and so... Yeah, you know, the way the way the climate's going, I think it's important for us to think about that in the future. So I want to talk to you a little bit about how you do your farming. You've got raised beds and you talk yeah. about them being permanent beds. Can you explain to me what you mean by permanent beds? 
So the beds are 75 centimetres wide. Our pathways are about 25 centimetres wide. And so first and foremost, we don't walk or compact our beds at all. That's why we have pathways. Lots of conventional agriculture and tractor-scale farming, the tractors just plough through the soil and, and plant crops in a row and, and you know, it's, it gets heavily compacted. And So this style of growing is ultimately focused on soil health. So some, some people will they'll green manure their, their area or their blocks and then they'll rebuild their permanent beds after they've slashed the green manure and mown it in and stuff like that. And other people don't. So ours ours will stay here. Once they're formed, that's it. They're, they'll they'll be there. Do you forever. turn them over at all? No, not at all. And because so, you're not walking on the beds, they're not becoming compacted, so you don't need to aerate them at all. Well, we do we do aerate them. We use a broad fork, which is the big fork that it's the width of our bed, and you step onto it. It's got two long handles that come up to sort of shoulder height. And you step onto the base plate and we use that to aerate the soil. But we only do that once a season on the beds, really, because they're not being compacted, they're not being turned over, they don't. The ideal is the less disturbance, the better. What are you trying to prevent by not disturbing the soil? Or what's the benefit of not disturbing the soil? Just increased soil health, soil life, the microbiology in the soil, you know, it doesn't get disturbed and... I think a big benefit of no-dig or no-till gardening, which is what our model is based on, is it suppresses weeds. It kind of follows the natural cycle of plants. You know, nature doesn't dig up soil to re new plants. It falls, it decomposes, and then it photosynthesizes again. So you're kind of mimicking that process. And you're, you're building topsoil, which is, you know, really important. You know, large agriculture today, we lose tons and tons of topsoil every year. And we really want to focus on building that up and, you know, creating more life within those first few inches of the soil. When you're harvesting your plants, do you pull them out of the soil, roots and all, or do you snip them at the base? I mean, obviously for root crops like carrots and turnips, you have to pull them out of the soil. But for your green crops, for instance, like kale or lettuce, how do you manage your harvest for those? So with our heavy feeding crops, like your broccolis and your kale, which have quite large root systems and stems, they can be you know, quite difficult to cut through. We actually cut them just under the surface of the soil so that the roots decompose and provide plant food. Yeah, it provides food for all the all the life in the soil and they also break down into more organic matter. It's essentially the same principle as a green manure. You grow a green manure on a bed, obviously for its nutrient-fixing capabilities, but also all the roots that are produced. Once you slash it and mow it down, that then becomes organic matter as the roots drop off into the soil. So aside from using the plants themselves to improve the soil and the health of the soil, do you ever add anything to your soil? Yeah. On our raised beds, we we mulch with compost. As Lauren's saying, that helps with the weed suppression. And, you know, we we have to add amendments. We can't we can't constantly take from the soil and just expect it to grow things. We get our soil tested and respond to that. And so with the compost on top as a mulch that goodness from the compost 
actually gets brought down into the soil by the bacteria, the worms, the the fungi, everything else that's in the soil. Is that right? Yeah, essentially. So another benefit of no-dig or minimal tillage gardening is the soil life is doing our hard work for us. They'll bring nutrients from the surface down, down below and, and vice versa. They bring it up from the surface and, yeah, it's, they're really doing most of the work for us. We also, in regards to fertility, a bit, the biggest challenge and also best of organic farming is crop rotation. We only fertilise when we absolutely have to. So when we have heavy feeding crops like tomatoes or winter brassicas like cabbages and broccolis and cauliflowers, we'll be fertilising with, you know, chicken manure. But then we have light feeding crops that will always follow those crops, which will either put nitrogen back into the soil, like nitrogen-fixing peas or beans or or lettuces, which are quite quick and don't need a lot of help. So the crop rotation is also really important mm. because we're not having to buy quite so much in. I've been lucky enough to visit your market garden in Baghdad on quite a few occasions and I recently went up and had a, a look at your new beds that you've put in up in Lilydale. And one of the things that struck me about your market garden is how closely some of your plants are growing together. And I wondered if you could tell me a bit more about this. It's called biointensive. This style of farming has been done all over the world in many different cultures for decades and decades and decades and so it's nothing new really but it's just you know the last however many years when conventional agriculture has really taken over it's just been sort of forgotten about or people aren't aware of it as much i read a figure in a book you know we can produce roughly 10 times the amount of crops in the space that a conventional you know tractor scale vegetable farm could that's phenomenal um, and so important in this day and age where we're losing more and more prime agricultural land to housing and other yeah, ventures, totally. particularly in Australia. So that's fantastic. Mm. What are some of the other benefits apart from yield? Are there any other benefits that it has? Definitely. So they create, you know, microhabitat for predatory insects. They shade out weeds. So when you're planting crops, really closely together when the canopy grows it covers the soil which is really important for nutrients runoff we've read a lot that says you shouldn't leave your soil bare it exposes it too much as soon as there's bare soil you're going to get plants that want to cover it that want to protect it from rain and wind so it has a beautiful canopy that houses all of these wonderful microorganisms and little bugs that'll help us and sometimes hinder us. But shading out weeds, we've found, has been its best sort of feature, I guess. Mm. Um, it's been phenomenal to see a crop flourish with virtually no weeds. And then when you take that crop out, you've still got no weeds. Do you have to plan ahead by season yeah. or mm. by year? or how, mm. do you, how do you plan this? Because it's quite... It sounds quite intense the way you are thinking about what goes where in your organic farming, so chemical mm. and pesticide free, which means that if you don't want to use chemicals on your plants, you don't want to put the same plants in the same bed, 
crop after crop. Yeah. So how far ahead are you guys planning? We try and plan as far ahead as possible. I think the best advice I got given early on was from a fellow friend and farmer who worked for Hobart City Farm. And he was telling me how he's a visual person. So when he looks at his garden, you know, he needs to be able to see physically where everything is. So he actually drew up some grids just on acorn pieces of paper that actually looked exactly like where his beds were in the garden. And then he numbered them all. And then he, every time he rotated this, his crops through, he would write them down. And so I took that on board. I colour-coded it. So every plant group has a colour. I find that really, really helpful. Planning ahead is also fantastic because it gives, it gives you records to look back on. With first-generation farmers, we haven't got experience in this. We haven't watched our, our family members do this. We've had to learn as we go, read a lot of books and listen to a lot of podcasts. And YouTube has been a fantastic tool. And speaking to other growers, more experienced growers. What are some of those books that have most informed your journey so far? We first started watching a YouTube channel by a guy named Richard Perkins who's in Sweden, he's English-born, and he has a farm called Ridgedale Permaculture. And he has written a fantastic book, which I believe he's writing a new edition again on regenerative farming in a really pragmatic way. So he documents everything in all of his systems because he has a multi-layered farm where he does egg enterprises, poultry enterprises, he, ha- he runs cows, he... He does market gardening. He does agroforestry. Elliot Coleman is what well, is the the godfather of this style of market farming, I believe. And and newer farmers have followed on from what he's put out there and, and educated people with. Who are yeah, some but, of the people that have been most inspirational? Whether you know them or follow them or have read from them, who who has really inspired you to continue this really quite hard work journey that you've been on over the last three years? You. (laughs) (laughs) A little dairy called Tongala Cheese. In terms of, you know, people that we haven't necessarily met, as Lauren said, Richard Perkins, his book and his YouTube channel is just so good. Like some people sit down and watch Netflix at night time, but we watch... Richard Perkins or other YouTube farmers. I've got the yeah. biggest smile on my face. <laughs> There's a great community here in Tassie. I'd say that has been our best resource and tool yeah. is the relationships that we've built with people. Yeah. My final question, I'm going to ask you each one at a time. So, Lauren, I'm going to start with you. What's your mm-hmm. favourite vegetable or favourite bit of produce that you grow and that you eat, and how do you best like to prepare it? Mm. Well, I'd have to say, from a producer's perspective, mizuna has been one of my favourites to grow. It's incredibly productive, and you can grow it quite densely, so it has that canopy again. It has several cuts in a season, so you can just keep coming back to it, and you'll keep being able to cut from the same bed. So that square metre is so much more productive than, say, cauliflower, where you can only really get one cut from a cauliflower and then you're going to have to put something else in. So that's been really fantastic. Chefs have been really pleased with it. It's quite 
it's not it's quite unusual. It's a salad green out of the brassica family. You can cook it or you can just eat it fresh. And it also varies really differently throughout the season. So it can be quite spicy at some times of the year and other times of the year it can be quite succulent and juicy. So my other favourite crop to eat and cook is probably Takarai turnips. They're a salad turnip. They can be eaten fresh. I know you're a fan of them. Oh, they're my favourite veg after zucchini. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Oh, zucchini, gosh. The chicken tender as well. You'll never go hungry with a zucchini plant. Um, (laughs) But high-grade turnips, no, you can cook them. They're great sautéed in a bit of butter, just with a tiny pinch of salt. I love eating them fresh, sliced really thinly through salads or just as is, dipped in something yummy, like a nice hummus. And they grow quick from a gardening perspective. You know, they don't have many days in the ground until they're ready. The tops are beautiful and make nice dressings and things out of the tops. Such a versatile plant, both in the kitchen and in the garden. Yep. And Mark, what's your favourite bit of produce that you grow and eat and how do you like to prepare it? I can never choose between carrots and onions. I love carrots because from a, from a, a farming point of view, you know, the yield you can get off, off of one of our beds is insane. And the flavour of an organically grown carrot is just exceptional. Like, you can't compare it to anything else. It's so good. And also, they took it, they were real tricky for us to master carrots. I don't know why. We just struggled with them. And then when we finally cracked it, it, it felt so good. So I love carrots. But onions, onions are so underrated, you know. People don't value onions as they should. You know, obviously you've got your, you know, your standard reds and brown type, storage type onions, but the more heirloom varieties, we, we grow trapeer onions, we grow cipollini onions, you know, and they can become a dish by themselves. Again, the flavour of an heirloom onion grown in, in the organic practices is just you can't ever find that in a supermarket the onion doesn't get enough appreciation the the humble onion so guys where can we get your fantastic produce from a big thing for us is that we we really believe people should have easy access to good nutritious food and so we're actually going to start selling at a farmer's market launceston has one of the best farmer's markets in the country it's just a really great market and so we're actually going to transition more into selling at the farmer's market and, and less so to restaurants. And we're also planning to do vegetable boxes in our local area as well. Well, thank you so much, guys, for your time today. I've had a great time talking to you and I've learnt lots about what I should be doing in my veggie patch. Uh, so thank you very much. And any last things that you would like to say to our listeners out there or anything that I've missed? I think just telling people that a lot of farmers will say, yeah, it's hard work, oh, it's so hard, which it is. But it's also incredibly rewarding. It's a lifestyle choice. You get so many positive things come out of living on the land and living, you know, the way we live, the way you live. You have a great connection with the people around you, with your family. So I definitely don't ever want to discourage people from doing it. We want more people to do it. Mm, We need more farmers. 
<laughs> and my, my word of advice would be to people is to, to support your local farmers. Make the extra effort to go to a farmer's market or visit a farm stand, buy produce from your local farmers because we need to support that industry. And um, talk to your local farmers. Talk to them about how they yeah. grow so that you can be better informed. Yeah, well. most, most farmers would love to have you come and visit their farm and see how they produce whatever it is they're, they're making or growing. And so how can people contact you guys? We're on social media. We've got Facebook and Instagram. And that's Feld's Farm, F-E-L-D-S-F-A-R-M, all one word? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And you can also email us with that same name at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and hopefully you'll be able to visit us soon at the Harvest Launceston Market. Yeah. In I hope so. I want to come and visit and see everything growing again soon too. Thank you so much, guys, for all your time. I, it's, it's really nice to hear again what you've been doing. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Curious Farmer. If you too have questions or any comments about this episode, please contact me at thecuriousfarmer at gmail.com. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and subscribe. If you can, rate and review it. It keeps me going and makes it easier for other people to find. Till next time.